From the crossroads of America in the Hoosier state of Indiana, this is Get In, the podcast focused on the unfolding stories and extraordinary innovations happening right now in the heartland. I'm Nate Spangle, head of community at Powderkeg, and I'll be one of your hosts for today's conversation. I'm joined in studio by co-host Christopher Day, CEO at Elevate Ventures. On the show today is Omar Atia, co-founder and CEO of Zero Carb Life. It's this concept of help without worrying about what you're going to get back in return help others, trusting that's what you're just supposed to do. Omar Atia is the co-founder and CEO at Zero Carb Life, an Evansville-based company that has developed the world's first zero-carb, high-protein pizza crust. In today's show, we're going to cover building a consumer product company, how to take a physical product from idea to real life, and share some startup stories that are sure to inspire and educate you. Omar, welcome to Get In. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a blast, Omar. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, I am pumped about today's conversation and just learning about growing a direct-to-consumer brand, all the things that you guys are doing with Zero Carb Life. But before we get into that, I want to take it back a little bit, right? So in my research and learning about kind of your background, I know that you've been an entrepreneur since grade school. Can yeah. you tell me some about your earliest experience and earliest exposure to business? Yeah. And, and at the time, I didn't know that's what I was doing. I didn't know it was entrepreneurship. But I, I remember always having this desire to make the deal and to have a hustle. And, to, and I would look at people who have achieved things, especially business-wise, and think that should be easy for someone who puts their mind to it. But I remember, for instance, in, in school, middle school, having an opportunity where I saw people selling candy for their teams. I didn't know at the time that you're only allowed to do that if you're doing it for a school team. <laughs> and so I was like, these guys are really overcharging for this candy. I could, I could get this. Undercut them. <laughs> I, I love it. I could undercut this market. So I went out and bought wholesale candy bars and was selling them for about a day and a half until I was caught. That quote, is awesome. Quote, unquote. And it was, I was criminalized. It wasn't like criminalized police or anything but i was like told hey you're breaking the school rules and i didn't even know i was like well everybody else is selling <laughs> Wait, like, well, omar you're not on the baseball team <laughs> what are you well, doing they're, they're selling for their sport and i said yeah but they're selling it so expensively why can't we just and so eventually i understood that it was not something i could do but from that moment i realized that i need to have a hustle and and as soon as i was old enough to get a job i got a job but it wasn't it was just because that's what i could do but i was always trying to do something like baseball cards of course everybody that was entre even close to entrepreneurial, dealt with baseball cards very differently than people who were just collecting them. Even though I, I didn't even like baseball as a sport. <laughs> I just knew that's where the valuable cards were. Absolutely. It continued from there. And, and even when I graduated Purdue, chemical engineer, and, and during that process of deciding what company to go work for, everybody else had the company they wanted to work for and they were targeting to get interviews with. I looked at it as a numbers game. I did have companies I wanted to work for, the P&Gs and the Johnson & Johnsons and so on. And I ended up with P&G. But during the process, I was, there was a joke in my senior chemical engineering class that I, was, I had a suit on every single day of first semester of senior year. And it's because I had an interview every day. And for me, it was just like, it was a numbers thing. I wanted yeah. the training on the interviews. And mm -hmm. I wanted to have as many interviews as possible, to have as many options as possible, to be able to negotiate my deal. And I did. I had actually two two departments at P&G compete with each other for me and up my initial salary nice. as a fresh grad, which was something that others wouldn't have even thought of. 
having that entrepreneurial spirit from an early age, was that something instilled in your home life? Were there other entrepreneurs around you growing up? That's a really good question. To some extent, but actually a little bit of the opposite at the same time. So I had some relatives that were entrepreneurial minded. And, but it was less, I was more impacted by the fact that my father as a, as an immigrant, my father immigrated from Egypt in 1969 to the States. He was doing very well in Egypt at the time. He was an engineer, had a military engineering job, which was like very cush, paid very well. He actually supported his, his family of origin because he was the one who made it out, if you will. And when he came to the States for him, life is about getting a good job. If you're the son of an immigrant, daughter of an immigrant, it's generally Generally, it's you're a doctor, you're an engineer, you're a lawyer, for the most part, especially from the Middle East, Indian subcontinent, that's generally what you're expected to do to be successful. And then you make money and business is something that you do on the side with available money. It's not something that you take the risk and throw away the career to do. And that was definitely the set expectation in the home of origin. That is, that's just amazing. What brought your family from Egypt to the States? So I think even though my father had a good situation, it was clear that because so many people were not in a good situation, it was clear that without a lot more opportunity for education, a lot more opportunity for a job market, and with sort of the situation in Egypt at the time, it was clear that there was dictatorial regimes don't necessarily lead to great economies. (laughs) Unless, of course, there's just a ton of money available from other sources, which that's a different story. But the point is that it was a foresight that he had that he wanted more opportunity for a family that he's grown. Who in those early years did you look at and go, oh, that's interesting, besides your father, besides your family? Yeah. So I had had a, a couple of cases of uncles that were entrepreneurial and they weren't necessarily extremely successful, but they tried things yeah. and some of them worked. Were they still in Egypt or were they, or were they no, in the States? Uh, no, most of them were in the States. The uh, being an entrepreneur in Egypt, you, you take more risks than in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're talking about ecosystem development, which we'll talk about later, you're talking about now it's so much better because there's a lot of, especially from the Gulf Coast countries, there's a lot of trying to bring talent yeah. back yeah. to the Middle East. But at the time, it was much more about nationalizing of companies and even multinational companies coming over. It was about building the foothold and the supply of that. So there wasn't a ton of you can take the risk and make it out type of mindset. You either come from money or you don't come from money. If you don't come from money, you're the labor force. You're serving those that come from money. And unfortunately, that's the general norm. And in countries that haven't developed beyond the wars that they went through, et cetera, et cetera. You're, when you came over, did your father, did he have to take a step back to get a foothold? Initially, or? so he talks about this now. I didn't know these stories until after yeah. he retired, he started telling all his stories. But yeah, he says the story, for instance, as an example that, look, I had to, I was an engineer at the top of my class, had an amazing job in Egypt. When I came here, I had to be a welder for a month before an engineering firm even gave me a job. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't right. Re- he said, I wasn't about to sit and not have a paycheck. So yeah. I, I became a welder to have a paycheck. He said, and it paid really well. It just wasn't that comfortable of a job, but he did that. That's wild. It's impressive. And he, when people would come over that are engineers, he would talk them into, he was, he became that hub that people would go to. He would bring them in as draftsmen, for instance, or he'd bring them in at the lower end of whatever work had to be done in the engineering firm to prove themselves out, even though they did more amazing things where they came from, just to prove to their talent. And while they were also getting acclimated with the language and sort of the business culture changes. So as the son of an immigrant, this standard is typically, I'll usually typically set that you're going to go on to be a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer. 
But meanwhile, you're growing up and, and you're a hustler, right? Yeah, exactly. Did you feel supported in your early entrepreneurial endeavors or is it clashing with your dad? Hey, focus on school, go to college, get a good job, take the safe route versus be the entrepreneur. Definitely the latter more from my father. Not that he would stand in the way of things. He would just say, not at the expense of the typical path. Don't risk the path. Do what you want, but don't risk the path. Even when it came to sports and a job, he would say, look, the reason you, you're in, fortunate enough to be supported by your father financially through high school and even into college when other people may not have that in other countries, you're going to focus on being the most successful in that path mm -hmm. that's been charted for you type of thing. It wasn't in a negative way necessarily. It was just him saying, make the most of what I've given you without having to take extra risk because you're not forced to. For him, he came from a world where people who had to take that risk, they didn't have another choice. They had to hustle in order to eat and the day in order to feed their family. And that's often the case. People have small, what they call micro enterprises. And, and of course, we've heard the, these stories about firms, charitable causes that have created micro loans for micro enterprises in very impoverished nations. There, that's definitely the case of countries like Egypt and so on, to where entrepreneurship is seen as for those who don't yet have an, a paycheck that supports things well enough. So why would someone, and there's not a it's ton of- It's seen as the unemployed. Yeah, it's seen as the, the, the good-minded, strong-working person who's not, who doesn't have employment in the middle-class range of jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's rare big exit options. There's yeah. rare big yeah. exit stories. So it's not seen as how, that's how you make that's it big. Yeah. Now there's a little more of that because there's a little more of tech startups. There's more growth startups in the recent 20 years. But before that, there wasn't a lot of that in the Middle East. So Kimmy... Go, did you have something else, Nate? Yeah. yeah, one last thing there. I'm just like so fascinated. Your dad seems like a very wise individual. He immigrated from Egypt. What do you think one or two of the biggest lessons you've learned from his story? So I've learned quite a few things. One of them, which he never explicitly taught, but I've learned now from his stories, is something that actually, I, like I talked about, I want us to talk about the vision. It's this concept of help without worrying about what you're going to get back in return. Help others trusting that's what you're just supposed to do. Amen. Like he came to the States. He made a great life for himself. He did not leave behind one soul in Egypt that wanted to do the same thing, except that he would help them significantly. And he never talked about it. And he never taught. I have to like drag it out of him, all these things that he had done for others. And the reason he did it is because he just believed that if he had people like that, it would have been easier for him. And so he wanted to make it easier for others. That concept of helping without worrying about what you get in return for our ecosystem, for instance, is huge. And I believe in it wholeheartedly. So that's one lesson I learned from. Another one is that stop your whining kind of thing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Come on. Yes, of course, all of us have challenges and not to belittle people's anxieties, people's hardships, et cetera. Everybody's story is different. Dave Chappelle has this joke where he says, comparative suffering never ends because you can, when someone says, if I say, hey, let's get lunch. And he says, kids are starving in Africa. So what? I, I still, I'm still hungry. <laughs> but the reality is you do learn a little more about appreciating the things you have versus looking at the things you don't when you hear, when you live through or are the son of a story like that. My father genuinely came from a family that had very little. And even though they had little, he tells me the story of my grandfather, who I never met because he passed away before I, I was born, that he would, his wife, my dad tells me about stories where his mom would get in the fight with his dad because he'd come home from, he's supposed to be collecting rent. They owned like uh, another property. It was still in underprivileged conditions and so on. So he'd go to collect the rent from the building and he'd come back with two of the 12 rents. 
And his wife would be like, why do you only have two of the 12 rents? And he'd be like, this guy had this problem. This guy had that problem. So I'm waiting till next month. She'd be like, what about us? We don't have enough to eat. That's what we need. But that story by itself is very inspiring to me because mm-hmm. I have so, like we have so much. And sometimes we focus on, I get a challenge of, oh, okay, our, our, our in-store sales needs a little bit of boost. And I'm like, God, why isn't it going exactly as I'd hoped? This number of units, this number per week, like it was in this other retailer. Come on, you don't want just a little bit of challenge to work through. And as entrepreneurs, if you don't have that thick skin and that appreciation for, hey, trust that there's a solution to everything, just work, work and work. And that's how you become successful. You don't become successful doing anything but putting your mind to something and just staying after it day in, day out, year in, year out and sticking to it, and you'll definitely succeed at the end. It's just about work and believing in, in what that, that work achieves results. Yeah, yeah grit. Yeah, makes yeah. me think of grit, right? Just yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it, that really is what it is. It's just having that grit and applying it day in and day out, no matter what you feel, and has surrounding yourself with people that believe in that. I wholeheartedly agree with that. That is such a resounding message. So, but before you were a full-time entrepreneur, right, you were working for PNG. I was working for P&G first. Chemical engineering grad from Purdue. You're bidding P&G's departments against (laughs) each other. You graduate college. What are you doing? You're an executive, right? No, I was a product (laughs) research engineer initially, which was actually an amazing initial job to have, especially for entrepreneurship, because I I learned the application of before data analytics, before all this stuff, we were very focused on statistics as product research engineer at a P&G. Your job is leveraging statistics to understand what you need to do to product to get the most quality and the most consumer impact out of the least cost. And so it's like the perfect learning for the fresh grad out in Kemi. And I also got a master's from Purdue part-time as I was working. And these are all existing products in market or these new products are thinking about taking them? So we were, I was mainly focused on existing products improvements. There was one project that worked on with new products, but, and then of course at Kraft Foods, I worked on new products. So I moved from product research engineer at Procter & Gamble went to Kraft Foods as a product development engineer, but in productivity. So that the job there was, what do we have in market? How can we make it cheaper, but better at the same time, innovating in that way. And had a one patent that was actually got the patent on it. Others that I left Kraft before I did. And each time I would be in R and D or operations. So I, then I navigated a career through different consumer products, companies, all of them big, all of them offering me a big, thicker golden handcuff for going and doing something bigger. And I feel like that's, at the time, I'm like, okay, that's what I need in order to feel like I'm really living my entrepreneurial life. I don't know it, and I'm not calling it entrepreneurial. I'm calling it making the bigger impact, seeing my worth played out in the impact on people's lives that work for me or the consumer. That's how I'm seeing it. I didn't realize that what I really needed to do is take a leap and not work for someone else and build something with people that believed in it with me. Tell us about that. What, what, was the final, what was the final domino that led you from a... Yeah, so there was a few dominoes in between because I always had a side hustle. So I had a restaurant that I launched when I was full-time at P&G. It was a Mediterranean Moroccan restaurant. And working on your... Yes, <laughs> I had a, my first son was born. I had the Moroccan restaurant. I had the full-time job at P&G and I was working on my master's through Purdue. And, and you uh, got eight hours of sleep every night. <laughs> during my 20s. So here's the thing. If you're going to get less sleep, do it in your yes. 20s. Yeah. And it's okay. It, you, you end up making up for it. But yeah, in my 20s, I never slept seven hours. I never even slept at all. I don't think six hours. I don't necessarily condone that. But if you have to, that's, that's the time. That's the to time. Do it. Yeah. 
Um, I, I'm totally with you. In my 20s, same way. I yeah. just, I'm like, you know what? Right now, building the foundation works like a dog. And your body, t- like when you're in your 20s, you're like, my body's not, t- I, my body's telling me I'm okay. I would literally fall asleep in bars yeah. with friends. Yeah. It felt it, amazing. Yeah. Look, the nap you take yeah. when you fall asleep because your body needs you to sleep, it's the <laughs> best <laughs> nap. In the- no one can ever match that type of a nap. Yeah. And sometimes you take it like waiting in line for something or, <laughs> or sitting in your car at, the, at a drive-thru and it's just the best nap in the world, even if it's two minutes. But that's the 20s. And then in the 30s, I had a couple of other side hustles. I had a language startup that actually I was a partner in. One, when I, once I had three children, wanted, I realized that, look, I spoke Arabic well. I'm fluent in Arabic because my dad and my mother had the foresight to go to Egypt when we were young. We spent some years in grade school there, then came back to the States, even though we were born here and raised here and we knew our life was going to be here. And that made a big difference for me to be connected to Egypt's culture, connected to the language. And very few people that are children of immigrants have that. You lose your language of origin. You lose all that stuff. I wanted that for my kids, but it was very difficult to do, to just leave and go live in another, like that near impossible in my mind. So developed this language startup to help young people learn the language at home. At the time, a video conferencing was brand new. It was in like an 09 and it was getting big. And so we leveraged that along with some scribe tools that would go online. So leverage some new technology to, to develop this language startup and then exited that in 14. Not necessarily a big exit or anything just because it needed to continue with someone else and it wasn't that, that great. And then, uh, and then, you were know, you working on that full time? So there was a year that I was, so at, between Dean Foods and me, Johnson, we got a USAID grant for that startup that basically they wanted us to grow as many jobs as possible, especially because we were employing a lot of women as uh, to have sort of their micro enterprise of teaching and so women in Egypt, and this was USAID in Egypt. So they gave us a big grant, and but they required me to be CEO full-time. So I did that for a year, and it went really well. And I pulled some people, some talent that had helped us make that successful initially to, to my future endeavors. And then in 2012, I worked for Mead Johnson Nutrition, did great work with them. It was a great company, but it was still the same itch was there. Started a consulting firm. Someone knew about Ignited Thinking as a process. We took Simplex which is a process developed by some people. And I became a master trainer on it and added to it some elements from the manufacturing environment called Ignited Thinking and some systemic things of follow-up to develop business and to things that you now call, we can call them scrum process. Like there are things that are adjacent to that, uh, but it's a whole system. It's a whole mindset and culture of how you think innovatively, creative solutions, and it, and it helps grow things. So we started a consulting firm, mainly focused on, on partners of mine. While I was full-time, them being full-time, growing relationships, especially in Dubai, mm-hmm. and then found a couple of clients in the US. And then it became clear that I needed to be full-time with them because the client base was growing rapidly. And I said to myself, okay, this is my in, is to be in consulting. And then the growth startups that I can become a part of will be through this. We get cash from the big companies that are able to pay for it. And then the smaller startups, I, either ideas that we have or ideas that others have, we can develop those without having to require cash from them through our own underwriting of them. And that's how we started down the path of, I started down the path of entrepreneurship and brought people with me. How long were you working in consulting? That was for six years total. So it, and it didn't end technically because we still have ThoughtFire and we still do a th- what's called a ThoughtFire for Good, which is mainly to help nonprofits. And we have one person who's full-time on that. Nice. And they have a support staff and that's part-time and then consultants that they bring on board. And then I help ideation and so on because I'm still a master in the process. But we've leveraged that process to grow Zero Carb and we've leveraged that process to just in general to, to grow our mindset with regards to where we can go with Zero Carb. But I was in consulting for six years total 
where three years of it was growing rapidly in mm-hmm. Dubai. So how did you come across Zero Carb? How did you decide to Yeah, so that? Zero Carb was that my, my passion and love for foods was always there in food technology. And I believe that our, I'm not just saying this because we have Zero Carb and it's successful now. I genuinely believe that our part of the country, we need to identify what are those core areas of verticals that we can be the leapfrog of the coasts in and have our growth startup world be centered around those. And there was, I had a friend who was a partner in something that he was like, I lost this much money on it. And apparently it was an idea that was started as a restaurant. And I was like, what was the idea? And he's like this. And I was like, did you guys look at it as being scaled into, into manufacturing and other ideas coming out of it and us innovating more and so on? No, we don't have any of that. This was just my, my friend who, my cousin, he told me my cousin who's, he was an accountant, but he just had diabetes and invented this crust. And he took a really long time to invent it. And I believed in him and wanted him to do something with it. And I was like, well, that wasn't the right way to do something with it. And he's like, can you sit down with him and talk with him? And that's how it started. So I met Muhammad Ali at that time, yep. my co-founder. And, uh, and then we, it started from there. Understanding the food science of it, from my perspective, for him, it was, it's all about just kitchen creation. But for me, I then brought the food science perspective, the scale-up perspective, et cetera. And then we started, the, and then I brought a team around it. And then in 2020, COVID shut us down with all clients on ThoughtFire's side because everybody's business shut down. So all of the revenue streams of ThoughtFire that was supporting everybody being part of the team and growing the company was a screeching halt. So then I brought everybody from that and said, let's just, this thing can be huge and let's just put everybody to work on this. Did you have to reformulate? Anything in the original? Yeah, we definitely did for the scale-up process. We maintained some of the proprietary nature that was already submitted with the first patent as we scaled up. And then, of course, submitted two more patents because because there was some aspect that the uniqueness is there's no binder. And so we figured out how to keep that uniqueness Mm. while we scaled up. And then we've also then created more product forms and and we have a mindset of how the same thing can be translated into even other product bases. So for the listener that might not be familiar with what Zero Carb Life is, can you give us a quick overview of what you're building and the products you guys have released? Yes. So Zero Carb Life is all about amazing taste that tastes the same as or better than the carb-loaded alternative foods, but is high protein, low to zero carb. And so right now our products are pizza crust and chips. And the chips taste the regular chips that you would buy, Frito-Lay chips, for instance, not to go after one specific company, but (laughs) any amazing chips that you would like but they're zero, literally zero carbs. It's all protein. And its base is mainly chicken breast. And it's simple ingredients. The ingredient line is just four ingredients. And it's all in our process. It's on our patented, patent pending process of how we make it to be that way. And, and our goal is not just uh, these product forms. We have six more product forms that are scheduled to launch. We, but as, of course, product forms are catching fire in the market, we zero in and focus on them even more. And so maybe we delay the launch of the others. Because our goal is really to just provide the market with what is needed for people to ha- live a healthier life without having to give up taste and give up the foods that give them joy and give them sort of comfort. So this was originally a restaurant concept? In 2010 to 2011, mm-hmm. Muhammad had launched it as a restaurant concept, and he was basically making pizza for people to come in and eat at his restaurant. Okay, so then pandemic happens. You kind of shift from Thoughtfire, full in on zero carb. Yep. Day one of that, hey, I'm full-time on Zero Carb now. What are you working on? So we worked on specifically, of course, the scale-up initially. So he had done Kitchen Top, and that's all they were doing at the restaurant. Is there was no sort of scaling of it. So the very first thing we did is identify how we could build equipment that could scale for high volume because we knew this could grow huge. 
And then the next thing we did is two things, worked on our e-commerce side of the business. Real quick, can you go back? So you had to build your own equipment, customize your own equipment because those process lines as a result of your, the patent you have pending on how you made the product or how you, what's the word I want to use? Like, why did you have to build the the technology wasn't out there? So there's technology out there, but uh, there's technology to make pizza crust, but we needed technology to transition using our material, which is chicken chicken breast and and to bind. So to bind chicken breast, there's specific time temperature and there's specific product formation that's needed. It's not, we're not talking about millions of dollars in equipment. We're talking about unique alterations to equipment. And that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing is that it's not like we can replicate it in other places because we have the unique understanding of how to manage time temperature. And this came from, of course, the kitchen top process to some extent, but also my main work in foods has been on time temperature because I was in dairy. I, I love this stuff because like an outsider looking in, I, I'm not a, I'm not a Kimmy, I'm not a food expert, but you just kind of assume that, okay, if you're going to make this new product and it's chicken based, okay, great. And you just go buy this piece and that piece of equipment yeah, it's from on the, market. Manufa- on the right. market and you right. plug the thing in and put your ingredients in and you're gold. But and no, it, and it's it, not there's the a little similarity to for in tech, in the tech world yeah. where there's going to be some plugins, there's yeah. going to be some yeah. shelf code that works, but you still are going to have to write your own code if it's to make it unique. Yeah, that's awesome. So what was the traction like pre, right, pre-pandemic? What were you guys doing? Uh, So we launched post-pandemic. So pandemic hit, the shutdowns, everything was March of 20. Company official launch was April 20. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was in the works for the six months prior. We launched the company April 20. And and we moved Mohammed from Chicago to Evansville in June of 20. Oh, wow. And you launched in April of a pandemic and yes. through the multi-million dollar revenue month one, right? <laughs> no. So it was definitely initially, how are we going to do But the beautiful thing about, so we were already doing sort of some consulting before we decided at what we called crisis to gold. We called it crisis to gold. And we said, look, what people need is to use our process, our ignited thinking process, our creative process to figure out, this is what I was planning to do before the pandemic happened. This is what I now need to do, not only to make the same amount of money, but I could potentially make more. Because what the pandemic opens up for those who understand entrepreneurship is if you read the market well and pivot appropriately, not only should you succeed just as much, you may be able to succeed much more because yep. you're going now in a new space that very much fewer people are going to go into. And that's really what happened. Most people are just in crisis mode, panic mode, and they can't right. get out of that. And they're Frenzy. looking at their bank account. How yeah. am I in savings? Okay, I'm getting... And it's understandable. We're humans, right? But the reality is if you're an entrepreneur, you've got to be ready for calamity, candidly. And if you're not, you're probably not really an entrepreneur. You're probably like a wannabe. And it's okay to have that. But you've got to switch your mindset if you want to really be in it for the long haul. You've got to be ready for the hard hits. You've got to be ready to take punches and stand back. Like I could say all the cliches for 10 minutes right now, but you really do have to have that. So anyway, for April, we launched the company. We make the decision that there's going to be three focus areas, R&D to develop the scale up, going to finding one customer to be our trial customer. And we had already come from the mindset of how we trained other companies, do a pilot as it works, grow on it as it doesn't work, pivot from the learnings. That's mm-hmm. the mindset. It's the mindset of, constant learning, constant pivoting. And as something works, double down and grow it. It's a, and that's entrepreneurship is actually really simple. If you've got the right mindset, it's not complex. Like people make it out to be, it's less, way less complex than a lot of jobs that people have to do. <laughs> candidly. I still agree with that. What are the, what so are like true. the core pillars of that mindset? The so entrepreneurial mindset. Number one, read, do not be humble and read the market. 
And don't read the market to be like, oh yeah, I gathered the day. No, listen to it like it is your boss. Then be ready to pivot. Even when sometimes people don't want to pivot when th things are going well. They should be going incredibly amazing for you to not pivot, but you should still be ready to pivot in a month. You should still be ready to pivot. So have a pivot mindset all the time and double down on the things that work and be in constant trial mode, constant learn mode. Like the job of growth startup is to be always learning and gathering data, not revenue. Revenue is a consequence of always learning, gathering data, pivoting and doubling down. I love that. I love it. I think it goes back to the first business I ever started. I, it was an e-commerce business. We were making laptop cases and I spent all of my time not asking people what they wanted us to build. I was like, you need, this is right. perfect for you. And, and we bought like a thousand laptop cases and I was like, this is perfect for you. You're going to buy this. It's going to change your life. And we sold like five. They're like still in the storage unit like one day. But I totally agree though. Listen. But that's a beautiful story because that's the story probably of 80% of people when they first start. Because it's really easy to hear these theories. And, and But until you live it, you're like, oh shit, I probably should have just built that around two customers. And then seen who was it. You got to put your hand on the stove and just get burnt. And right. like, oh, I'm not going to do that exactly. again. Exactly. So we go to that customer and it was great because I graduated Purdue. I had worked at Mead Johnson. My director at the time was actually the father of the founder of AZ Pizza. And so we had the Purdue connection. We had family con friendship connection. So I went to them. I said, look, you guys are the best. You're Evansville-based. We're Evansville-based. Be the first ones to bring our crust into your stores. And it flew off. What was the company? Azip Pizza. It's pizza backwards. So they call it Azip Pizza. Uh -huh. It's kind of like a Blaze concept. Okay. But it, and it was actually one of the first ones. It was just they didn't grow it as rapidly as a Blaze. They didn't get LeBron James to endorse or whatever. But it's but it's great. Everybody loves it in every of the markets that they have. And we they have good product. They have attention to detail. So we thought they'd be a great partner. So we partnered with them. And then we launched our e-commerce. And we launched our e-commerce with the humility of accepting where we what we understood well and what we did well. And then bringing in the talent through contractors or through new people that knew the things we didn't. And John Penna is an amazing original co-founder with us on this, on Zero Carb that led that part of things. And then, so everyone on the team had their expertise that they were really good at. And so we focused on those three and very quickly it became clear that the market was validating that this is amazing, This is, we love this. Not just the niche market that needs keto, celiac disease, disease friendly products, but in general, people who want to eat healthy, they were trying our product. They were like, this is way better than anything that normally I have to buy and begrudgingly eat. And <laughs> that's the key is we wanted people to start to believe healthy food, to think about healthy food differently than we do today. Like today, you go to the store, you buy whatever, cauliflower crust, pizza, or wh whatever you're doing, you're like, eh. and if you ask kids to eat it, they're like, really, do I have to eat it? And then they, they don't, they're heaving as they're eating it. <laughs> that should not be the experience. It, should be, it should be that like, you're like, blown away. This is healthy. I don't believe it. You're checking the back. And that's what happens with our product. People are checking the back twice and three times. There's no way this is chicken. There's no way this is chicken. How are you guys doing this? There's no way there's nobody. And that's what we want. We want to blow people's minds so that they tell 20 people and it grows from there. Amazing. What were a few of those early wins? Like you're starting to get there, yeah. you launch on e-commerce, you get a zip pizza. Yeah. Talk to us a few of those wins. So a few early wins, a zip, we had a timeline with them. Okay. We're going to launch in three stores. And then you guys will tell us when we can expand to 11 based on results. They came back to us within two weeks. They're like, guys, let's just expand to 11. These numbers are way too good. The second early win is that we got, we secured some really solid deals in terms of distributors as a result of having that first <coughs> distributor. 
and uh, and then the e-commerce results just flying off the shelf having people that are just loyal followers having influencers that started to help us and seeing the results from influencers in their posts how did you find those people early on your first influencer yeah so the first influencer some of them reached out to us candidly and saw that this is a good type of thing that that they cared about and they would be willing and then they made us the offers so we made deals initially to not pay as much and to show the results and because they need winning products as well and then of course we discovered that there's agencies and then they eventually introduced us to their agency and so that's how we met more influencers but it's it was all about us always being curious like always being curious about what the market is saying looking for those small wins and celebrating them but then having this mindset of we believe we will be a billion it's not we can be a billion dollar company. Oh, this is going to be a good thing. No, with or without. And we have this joke between JP and I that we have a hit list and most entrepreneurs have the same mindset. It's not a negative thing. It's not like you, you want to go after people and hurt them. It's like when there's someone that doesn't believe in you, you're like, I'm uh-huh. going <laughs> to make them in two years feel really embarrassed for not yeah. making the right decision. And that becomes a huge motivation for you. And it's a beautiful thing because it's not negative. You want them to then be helped afterwards, but like for you to be the one who's humbling them a little bit from their position. I, I love that. And I think, yeah, that's a very true statement. Like that hit list is a real thing for entrepreneurs. Opposite side of the coin, not everything in entrepreneurship is all sunshine and rainbows. Yep. Right? Tell Unicorns. us about some of those challenges. Yeah, no, so everything was amazing. <laughs> Look, the reality is that initially you're founding a company with founder money. And founder money means your money. It means your home. It means your livelihood. It means use for going paycheck. We had a a co-founder with me who was off and was believed in the idea, but we all had a limit to the money we could fund with. So it was really about how do you maximize this runway and get the results to where then you can leverage others that want to invest with you. And every single day, it's like a fear of the runway running out. So that challenge was real, especially in that early stage in in a major way. Because you have to result timeline that you need to hit. Mm-hmm. And the latitude for missing some of those deadlines or missing some of those results is really thin. And we had some of those. We had some where, for instance, some of the product initially was thicker than we expected. And so it was chewier than we expected. And we got comments, even though in all the taste trials, it was amazing. But initially some product went out and it was chewier or it was sticking. And so the kitchen staff wasn't able to release it as easily. But we... The beautiful thing is when we released initially, we released to a small enough market to where we could contain and re- and double down with those customers. And that's how you have to do it. And you have to give yourself the latitude to do that. Some other challenges, of course, talent challenges. So you know that you can grow extremely quickly if you're able to afford XYZ advertising, but you have to make the decision as to, I can't really pay for that right now. How do we come up with creative solutions? We need to push AZIP and we need to push our e-commerce and we need to and we need to pay for shipping and logistics that costs more than the product initially if we don't have good deals. How do we make the choice between where we spend the cash? And then, of course, that shipping and logistics challenge was huge to start. Now I'm going to layer on top of that the COVID-related challenges. So chicken prices went through the roof. Our business was chicken. <laughs> we're talking about 91% chicken in our product. That's how much oh we're God. dependent on chicken. During COVID, there was the chicken wars, there was bird flu, and there was COVID itself. So we're talking about a price structure that went, cost structure that went 1.5, 1.7, and at a point it was 2.2x of where we were. And we hadn't built in a ton of margin for ourselves because we really wanted to get pricing well for to gain traction. So changing pricing while you're small and or eating into your margin and then going to investors with Margin's not that good. Having to make those decisions was very tough, especially when you're staring a runway that's running out on you in the face. 
but again, with the amazing team, with the amazing creative solutions, we were able to make it through all of that. And, and then honestly, I can't say enough about the ecosystem and its support. And I know that's, I'm not trying to dovetail us into the next section, but it really was that the ecosystem, TOEF, Wexler, people early on that believed in us and saw the potential and how we came across, for instance, how we met Wexler, John Wexler, for instance, I don't know if you know the story. Tof, I don't, but, yeah, I but we were in Launch Fishers for a meeting with investors that were from the network of John Penna, who actually grew up in Fishers. And, uh, and while we're setting up for that meeting, we got some pizza from the AZIP in Greenwood, Indiana, so that we could have it fresh for them. Or he's walking in with the pizza and someone jokingly is asking like, oh, do you guys have pizza for us? And we're like, actually. So we start walking around with a few you know, awesome. extra ones. And Wexler is one of those people, we have no clue who this guy is. Yeah. And he's like, this is amazing. Can I talk to you guys for a minute? And we're like, yeah. And he introduces himself, tells us who he is. And we're like, oh, okay, you're way bigger than the people we're about to talk to. <laughs> and he, but he was so humble and spent time with us and, and introduced to other people. And then from there, like the network in, in the Fishers area, Indianapolis area grew hugely just because of that connection that was literally, we probably wouldn't have even made it had John not gotten stuck in traffic. Like he got stuck in traffic coming back with the A's of pizza. And that's why I say do all these things that I talked about as an entrepreneur, but luck is so much, for me, it's from a faith perspective, like there's got to be divine liking to what you're doing mm -hmm. and a, a, a helping hand as well. And you have to trust in that. But you do everything you can, but then you trust that the results will come that are supposed to come your way. But sometimes there, you can never plan what happens and it happens way better than you can ever plan. Quick break from our normal programming. I have Erica Schweier, COO from Elevate Ventures here in the studio today. Erica, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you're gonna tell us a little bit about this Rally Innovation Conference that's coming up. Yep, so it's the largest cross-sector innovation conference in the world. We're gonna feature six innovation studios. So think hard tech, software, sports tech, ag and food, healthcare, and entrepreneurship's gonna kind of be our catch-all. I love that. So tell me what is, who's it for? Yeah, it's for innovators, entrepreneurs, investors. Honestly, anybody probably listening to this podcast. And it's going to be a multi-day thing that's multi -day. happening in downtown Indianapolis. Yep. People coming in from all over the country and maybe even all over the world to be here. That's our hope. Yep. And the dates are actually August 29th to the 31st. Perfect. And if people want to find out more information about speakers, tickets, things like that, where can they go? Yeah. So they just go to rallyinnovation.com and sign up for communications. And they can also get their tickets. I love it. You heard it here. Rallyinnovation.com. We'll, we'll see, see you, you there. there. So can we dive into the ecosystem a Let's bit? Let's dive into the ecosystem. So how important is ecosystem, right? And what do you still see as missing gaps? But how important is the ecosystem yeah. when you're trying to start a company? And especially you've started a company in a sector where there's been things, right, in this market, but it's not as been as robust as B2B SaaS, yeah. right? Yeah. And I do agree that pendulum is swinging and the excitement in these other sectors is, I'm beyond excited with these other sectors. So talk about that. Yeah. So I'll talk about it on three sort of angles, if you guys will allow me and indulge me. One is how important it is and how helpful it was to us. A second is, like you said, the verticals. And then the third I would like to talk about is also what is still needed, especially yep. with regards to underrepresented. Yes. I'll call it underrepresented yep. founders because yep. I can't claim that things were amazing in Evansville for an Omar Atia founding a company initially until... Now, of course, everybody's lining up to support. And I'm not saying there weren't initially, yeah. but there wasn't like that jumping to support initially. And it, 
And the Allig- I, I call it alligator arms. Yeah, yeah. You could, that's a really good, actually. That's what Because the arms are there. It's just that like you have to do yeah. a little more effort than others potentially yeah. to reach out. And, just one know. more step, Omar, and then yeah. we will. Right? Yeah, yeah. And just go here and just go there and it's F this hit list ad. That's the mindset of the entrepreneur, right? Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, our ecosystem is huge. And I'm not saying we need to be handing out to as soon as a kid is, oh, I want to start a business. Okay, we got you. Come on our back. No, people still need to go through the struggle. But we can certainly minimize and leverage the co-struggling for the minimum that should happen is there should be a network effect that takes place for those who have been there to support those who are trying to get there and i think tof you've obviously exemplified this amazing i know you didn't pay i just want to make sure everyone knows yeah i did not ask for that he didn't slip me any money to say this but (laughs) maybe a 50 but the reason i keep talking about tof is because and this is nothing against anyone at all but there's just the mindset and the culture of being helpful for the sake of being helpful even when your job is to have a pipeline of deals, even when your job is to be to find the best investment. So there's going to be a tier of the best investment. That's who you invest in as a VC, as whatever. As a person who's made it and you represent the money to be given, right? Or you represent the help to be given. That tier isn't the only tier that she had. The only way to get a healthy pipeline and a healthy ecosystem is to support all the tiers. Some of them, yes, will drop out of the ecosystem because they're not even, they don't have the core elements to then rise up. But the only way for those other tiers to rise up is that they fail, but they get as much help along the road of failure. And they're not failing in the things that we can help easily. It's near impossible to have get everything right. And m- limiting the number of things that are already challenges is a way to make the pipeline healthier and still allow people to go through the struggle. And to me, that's how we, we were able to succeed. Some of the things were planned and supported on purpose. Some of the things completely unplanned running into people like a Wexler and, but candidly elevate from the get go. I think we were in that phase where elevate was becoming that organization that is way more helpful than it used to be candidly. And so we timing for us was good enough to get a lot of that help. But I think focusing on how do we get that culture, not just for the entities that are supposed to be supporting, but so that everyone knows they will benefit when they help others without waiting for anything in return. And I'm speaking to myself and speaking to my team in the process as well. The second, an ecosystem has to be there and has to feel, it shouldn't feel like a safety net that's going to catch you and just plug in money all the time. But there has to be enough capital to go around for sure. There has to be, there has to be capital to go to the major winners, but there has to be something that can support those that need a little bit of extension of runway. Do you think that has to be capital? I think capital is part of it. And look, every entrepreneur is going to tell you capital is all of it at some stage in their journey and it's just because they haven't they haven't gone to the part where okay you have the capital there's a lot more than just the capital but but definitely cap you we can't be an ecosystem that does everything else and doesn't do the capital piece mm-hmm. of it even in an environment where capital deployment is like slim to none it's actually an opportunity for us to then figure out creatively how do we make cuz we can make our capital go much further now it's worth so much more now but capital is part of it but definitely another part of it is how do you make everyone incentivized and seeing value in giving from what they've learned, even if they're not the big exit success, even if it's a middle tier success, how can it help the one that's a little below it in tiers? So having that ecosystem effect and having and encouraging that through events, through meetups, through personalities, through through communications, through just all the tiers of events, not just the formal like yeah. the rally, which everybody's looking forward to, yeah. but even the informal and encouraging more of that. And then to, to that, I believe that for us, 
we wouldn't be where we are without ecosystem support that we've had, without a doubt. Whether it's the IEDC, whether it's Elevate, whether it's the entrepreneurs that have succeeded in other things like the Wexlers and the Dave Becker and others of the world. And I'm sure there's people that I should be mentioning that I haven't mentioned, so maybe you can build. We'll add those down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll exactly. get those afterwards. <laughs> but, uh, and then you were about to say Yeah, something. so if you had advice for, there, there's an entrepreneur that's listening to this, it's like feeling on an island, they're yeah. feeling alone. What's your number one piece of advice for them to start to plug into this community? I would say just show up, number one, and look, at, I know what it's like when you're the CEO, the founder, you've got zero time to do anything other than make the runway go the furthest and make the right decision. And you're probably doing seven more jobs than you, sh than you should be as a CEO in, in the initial part of the business. Just add that to the list because you have to show up, you have to have the one-on-ones, you have to raise, you have to connect with key people. You have to be at these things to, to see the stories, to talk to the people, to connect. And one, one connection can go very far if it's the right connection. When you say show up, what does that mean? Where, so, where are some places that you plugged into maybe by accident sure. or on purpose that sure. you're like, oh, wow, that was a moment? So I think early on, definitely going to some of those coffee meetups in the morning that IDC was doing, for instance, doing meetings with potential investors, even if we knew they weren't going to invest, just to building go through the iteration, building the relationship, going through the iteration, getting the feedback from them on. Yeah, you, you, we may not be a fit, but if we were a fit, what's, mm -hmm. what are the things we still need to improve? Going through the networking events. Even if they, you look at the list and you're like, oh, there's no one there that's going to invest in my company. Go to that event because you may be able to help someone there. How'd you find David Becker? Through Wexler. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so again, a lot of, because we weren't in Fishers. So it's almost like it was help. We were helped because of that connection with Wexler who was connected yeah. to so many people. I want to brag on you for a second. And I think what you've been, there's been an undertone throughout the entire show, right? From what you learned from your dad, of just help people without an expectation for something in return. Going in there, you're raising money, you're growing your startup, you're not being transactional. You're not saying, I'm only gonna go and pitch people that are gonna, who could I help when I go right. there? I think that not making these relationships transactional are huge yes. and can go so far for entrepreneurs. Yes, actually that's a great way to put it and I'll even build on it and say, look at, so this for me, and I don't know how easy it is for other people to do this, but look at your entrepreneurial journey, not as the objective itself. It's just a means to get more connected to humans and to have more experience with humans and to give value and to gain that humility and that learning and that curiosity fulfilled from other humans. And that's what had attracted me initially to entrepreneurship is that I would actually have more freedom. Initially, in my mind, I was like, okay, I'll get financial independence so I can impact the lives of more people through charity or through charitable work or through volunteer work. And then I realized that the entrepreneurial journey itself is a way to impact the lives of humans and to have my life be improved in how I impact humans. If you come into it with that mindset, every single meeting you go to, every single networking event you go to will be 10x more in terms of the value. And you'll just feel better about life. Like you won't be waiting on this thing to happen or that thing to happen, trusting that it will happen if you keep going through that journey that way. That's Amen. interesting. I, I love the transactional word, right? Because I hadn't thought about that word in a while. And it's so true. <clears throat> this that Omar, what you're describing, it's just back to the old, there's an old adage or it's actually maybe an actual human reaction that we feel better or there's more dopamine released or something in giving yeah. than receiving. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the same principle on a much larger scale that Absolutely. you're describing. Amen. Absolutely. So talk and to us. it oh. brings you the value. I'm sorry. I oh, mean, yeah, so no. the bonuses, that's actually what brings the most value to your startup. 
that's the crazy thing. It's like counterintuitive. We think if you go in more transactional and focus on the transaction, that's how you'll get the most start value. Yeah. It's actually not. It's actually when you f don't focus on the transaction result, that's how you'll get the most value. Amen. Sorry, man. Go ahead. No, I Ask just want to for advice, not money. Yeah. What is that? The pitbull lyrics. Ask for money, get advice. Yeah. Ask for advice, get money twice. Oh, okay. it's, okay. a, it's a yeah. song that he right. released. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't know about the twice thing. That oh, sounds pretty sweet. Yeah. 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 So talk to us about the future. Okay. Talk to us about the future of the ecosystem as well as the future for Zero Carb Life. Are you ready to transform your brand with award-winning video content that captures your vision and connects with your audience? Check out Alchemy, the experts at building your brand using video. From story-driven social media snippets that leave a lasting impression to compelling full-length documentaries, they have got the expertise to take your brand to the next level. Alchemy is actually our video partner here on Get In, and they do amazing work. All of the videos across social, across YouTube, all that is done by Alchemy, and they're an amazing partner to work with. Reach out to me, Nate, at Powder Keg, or check out alchemyfilmco.com to get connected with Alden and his team. They will take care of all of your video needs. Beautiful. I really believe that Indiana as a, and the Midwest in general, but especially Indiana, because I think that's where we can have the most impact. I really believe that we can leapfrog. And I use that a lot because I, I think there's this concept of when there's so much talent and so much resources in some areas, how can we possibly match? Stop worrying about matching. Start figuring, start thinking about what are we actually more posi better positioned to be but much better and much bigger than. Mm -hmm. And everything has its cycle. We're at the virgin end of our cycle. And if we understand that and look at it that way and look at that the peak is way higher and we need to start climbing that, like we're at, that, we're at the initial tail of the peak. But we need to, when we get to the peak, we need to keep building more peaks, kind of like the age of paradox mindset. But, if, but to me, that's the future in the state of Indiana. And to me, it should be with three focuses. And I'm not telling Tove how to think about and, and Patrick how to think about this ecosystem development, but definitely underrepresented founders, the amount of resourcefulness that an underrepresented founder has and has to have in order to become an entrepreneur in the very first place, the amount of hurdles they have to go to, they are the, I'm not going to say they're better than other candidates, but they're absolutely at least equal to the best candidates that can then when supported with resourcing, when supported with ecosystem developing their sort of journey, can be, have huge results simply because they've just had to hustle that much more, had to struggle that much more. So spe specifically black owned business, woman owned, and then underrepresented in general, like minorities like myself. And, and then the children of immigrants specifically, like to have some kind of mindset shift that doesn't tell them F your parents, like Gary Vee says all the time, but at the same time, <laughs> but at the same time makes them feel comfort that they have a community mm -hmm. around them. So to me, that's that underrepresented support and for the future of the ecosystem that has to be a core part of it. The second is really being able to understand that we have certain verticals that we are prime, prime position to be the leaders of the nation and potentially the world in as a region. And we can bring the world to here. We can go to the GCC and say, we are your representative in the States of this. We can go to Europe and say, we're the representative in the States for this because we are the experts. We have it here. We're the core business. Yeah, we may not have been growth, growth startup mindset. It may have been all old money that controlled it, but we can make that shift easily, quickly, and with the right mindset if we understand what that will do for the overall ecosystem. And then the third thing is to just keep at it 
from an ecosystem development, the way we tell entrepreneurs to keep at it with their startup. Pit, test things out. So Omar's saying this is what we should do. Test it out on a pilot level, double down what works, pivot from what doesn't, and keep that going and bring more minds into it. So every entrepreneur, in my opinion, should put at least, like I know I came to you, Tof, and said, let me give of my time to support your vision. Yeah. Every single entrepreneur, it's almost like the military, like they need to have a service requirement <laughs> that goes along with, yes, make your startup successful and you have a service requirement of this many hours. Maybe it's not like that exact. Yeah. To support others, to help others, to give us from your ideation, to tell us what's working, what's not. It's not an option, it's a requirement because we're building something together that's gonna to be good for everybody. And that has to be there as well. I still agree with that. I mentioned this on a previous podcast, I think that the power of one, if you can just do one thing across the board, even if it's receivables, collecting money one day faster, it's so impactful. Let's go back to your to the to the underserved, the to the minority. I like to think of it as like on ramps. Yeah. So what are there are there some things that are top of mind or what could be implemented or what should be started or changed, et cetera, that could provide more on-ramps, more efficient sure. on-ramps for those entrepreneurs or uh, folks that want to start a business? So for very first thing that we cannot neglect, and I know sounds either cliche or sounds already played out, but having people like you represented in those things that you're going mm. to ask or going to, and I'm not saying we have to force it, but we need to almost be very intentful of it, below forcing it to have talent that is like those that we're wanting to attract in terms of culture, mindset, look like from the similar backgrounds. And the reason is because when I would go in Evansville to a meeting and, oh, where are you from? Like these things, they seem like they're not, no one, maybe it's very innocent. It's not intended to be a microaggression. But when you've lived your life told to check a box that you're white when you're in grade school and everybody else tells you you're not, and you're also not black and you're not, you're a minority, but you're being told to check a box. That's why, because there's not enough of you to make a non-white group mm. that you can choose. And you can't even choose other because you're not allowed to choose other because then we can't do our, our demographic. Living a life like that and then coming to a situation where you also are asking or going to ask support or advice and people who don't understand your background, don't understand your struggles, may empathize with it, very sincere, et cetera, but just they don't, they've never lived it it's hard to feel a deep connection. It's yeah. just hard mm -hmm. to. Yeah. You can with people like a tof, right? Because you just connect with everybody. But how many <laughs> people really connect with everybody? You know what I mean? Out of a yeah. hundred, maybe two. Tof so, is that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's one of, one of the two. Or maybe the one. But you have to have people that feel like they're, they've lived your life or some of it. The second thing I think is that we are very explicit that this vertical, we need to have this many that are from underrepresented founders. And we're still going to have our standards. We're still going to have this, has, these requirements have to be met. We're not going to deploy capital unless X, Y, Z. But then maybe there's extra support to get that, those pipeline of startups to get to that Next level time. so that they can be supported in that way. You need to have the big exits as well. You need mm -hmm. to have the representative, representation at all the tiers. Yeah. And so there may have to be extra resourcing, extra effort, extra focus, but it will pay out in the end because now you're talking about opening the door to so much more that is not being represented in other parts of the country that we can be the ones who yeah. bring up. And, and so that's huge as well. And then the third thing is to encourage that it's not, it doesn't have to be serving. A lot of times the mindset is, oh, what ideas do you have that can serve the community you come from kind of thing. Someone may have a passion for that, but that may not yeah. be what their thoughts are. Mm -hmm. let's, let's not assume that. 
or not, let's not assume they represent everybody from their group also, because that's the worst feeling in the world is that you're walking in somewhere and every day I walk in somewhere, I'm like, okay, I don't want them to think that all Arabs do this. I don't want them to think that all Muslims do this. I don't want them to think that all bearded men do this. And that's always on my mind everywhere I go. And it's never going to change. And that's okay. There's places in the world where I don't have to feel that way. But I've, I, cho- I choose to be in Indiana. I choose to feel that way because I know I want to make the world a better place. And that's part one of my struggles. So I think being conscious, that's the world that people that are underrepresented yeah. have to go through. Yeah, Omar, that's, um, this has been an amazing conversation. We are at time, but do you have two minutes left for the lightning round? Yeah. Okay. Let's these are it. these are full of quick hitters. <laughs> we have three questions for you. First thing that comes to the top of your mind. Okay. <clears throat> Question number one, outside of the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what is Indiana known for? Corn. <laughs> corn. Money. I love it. Hey, I'm proud of corn. What is one hidden gem in Indiana? The Hoosier National Forest, hands down. I know you need me to say this fast, but if someone hasn't been staying in a cabin at the Hoosier National Forest, especially in the fall, they absolutely have to. It's one of the best places in the whole country, and I've been to a lot of places in this country. For those who don't know where that is. So Monroe County, Brown County, anywhere really, but Monroe Lake, just stay somewhere in the Hoosier National Forest and enjoy the nature that's there. Amen. It looks like the Smoky Mountains. I think it's better. It's I, I, lo- I love the Hoosier, especially in the fall. There's nothing like it. The sunsets in Indiana are amazing. Enjoying a sunset in the Hoosier National Forest in a log cabin Amen. away from everything. There's nothing like it. Oh, I, there's some I, things like I that. Love, there's very I love that. Like oh my, those sunsets. <laughs> who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone who is doing big things. That's a good question. So I would say there's a couple people who come to mind. So I think definitely. I would say if I was in another context, I would say Tove because I really believe in the vision that he's bringing. I think Wexler definitely. I think there's a couple of founders that I've met that that have impressed me in Indiana. Do you remember their names? I don't remember their names, but I can. I, I we can plug them in later. We'll get them in the show yeah. notes. We'll get them. Yeah, in. yeah. Mystery founders at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know their startups, so I'll have to look at them. And and then of course everybody on my team is doing amazing things. Boom! So. There we go. Hey, this has been a great conversation. If people are looking to get plugged in with Zero Carb Life, maybe yeah. they want to try out Absolutely. the the products. Where can they go? So go to zerocarblifelyfe.com, order, and that's one option. Another option, which I recommend, is also going to an Azip restaurant or going to a Fresh Time and next month to pick up our life chips but don't wait for that order online and then go to one of these places we have sprouts retailer any sprouts retailer has our pizza on shelf tell all your friends and go to a sprouts retailer and pick up our product if someone out there wanted to try one product if you had one product to give them a chance what do they order i think they should order our barbecue chips if they like barbecue (laughs) <laughs> and if they, they like pizza, they should order like pizza. pizza. Our biffle, buffalo chicken <laughs> buffalo pizza. Buffalo chicken pizza. Yeah, Boom. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> buffalo and chicken. And if they like chips, they should try the chips. Yes. There we go. I love it. <laughs> hey, yeah. Omar, thank you so much. This has been thank great. You, Congrats on everything and keep up sure, the momentum. Sure. Thanks, it, Omar. Thank it was you. awesome. Appreciate it, though. This has been Get In, a Powder Cake production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for our guest or segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top-tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com slash newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com slash premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. 
Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for Startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.